0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Thank you, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for joining us again. This is our second panel at Kitchens for Good. Uh, We find this to be a pretty amazing collaboration. This is our uh, sixth panel, our second and final for this year, and today we're going to be talking about behind farm to table, the labor of farming, where we'll really talk about all of the issues that farmers face and, and how those have sort of resulted in where we are, which is the declining number of farmers and the aging of our farmer population. And then we'll talk a little bit about... How we might reverse some of those trends and how we can bring new people in. As a brief overview, and there'll be a lot, there's lots of opinion, lots of knowledge, lots of incredible people on the stage, but really we're going to talk for a minute about why local food matters, what it means for you, your health, the community, the environment, why we should care. And then we're going to spend a little, quite a bit of time probably, talking about some of the challenges. What are the challenges facing farmers? Uh, and how do they do what they do? And how does the food that you eat end up on your plate? And what's involved? And then finally, ending on, an, on a high note, we'll talk a little bit about opportunities. Where are the opportunities to you know, bring new people into farming, to br- raise awareness about farming in the eating community? So that's where we're going to go today, and we're going to kick it off. And I'm going to start with you, Eric, because I I think you're a seasoned speaker. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about your experience as a farmer and on the farm board. But why, why, why should the audience at large, the eating community, the student community, why should we be focused on our local farm communities?
0: Well, I mean, right off the bat, the obvious thing is the local food. But I'll leave that to a lot of other people here who can talk about that, especially restaurateurs and people like that. But in San Diego, we're really lucky. So here we have what the eighth largest urban population in the country and we have a top 20 county in agriculture. You don't find that anyplace else in the United States. So we have that advantage here, and we're lucky. We need to take full advantage of that. So it's not just about the food. I like to think that farms add a lot to the local environment and to the ambiance. And it's nice to know to sit a place like we can be sitting right here in urban San Diego and know that in less than an hour's time, we could be out driving in farm country. You just don't find that in many other urban communities. So I I think that's a real value. We've we've got to grasp that and and, and appreciate that, the fact that we have those farms so close at hand. Mm
1: -hmm. And look, maybe everyone knows this in the audience, maybe not watching on TV, but that we are the farmiest community in the United States. We have more farms per capita than anywhere else. And so this is something that people don't often think of when they think of San Diego. You know, that's not the first thing. Uh, I'd love to hear from some others. Tell me a little bit, maybe some of our farmers, why? You sort of why is sort of the focus, or anyone, quite frankly, about why? Why are we focused on this? Why should we, you know, be concerned about our local farm community?
2: So in 2005, there was a book published called Collapse, and it talked about the rise and fall of civilizations. And one of the things that I thought was most important in that book is they talked about how civilizations would rise and fall just based on their success in being able to manage and keep their agriculture, be able to feed their people. And we've really taken agriculture um, for granted, and not really a bad reason. We got there accidentally. We got there because we were moving along so well, and because agriculture was doing so well, many of us were able to move in for generations into other areas. We became doctors, we became scientists, we became lawyers, we became musicians. and All these wonderful things that are good things, but what happened in that is, we also moved away from our agriculture as we really began to depend on a few to make sure that we had food to eat every day. And in fact, the statistic is that it's 1% of the population that now feeds 100% of the population.
1: Thank you for raising actually that fact, you know, and that's a trend. You know, 100 years ago, farming looked like most professions where, first of all, at, at one point it was as high as 75% of the population. And also, you know, the, the, the age of the people doing the work was in the sort of 30 to 50 range like most jobs. And now what we have is uh, two trends sort of intersecting. One is that 1% of the population grows the food for the 99%. And also that, you know, the median age now is 58. So we have some Pretty dangerous trends that we have to work on, uh, you know, trying to reverse. And I was thinking about the book that you said earlier. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is the one, and I'm going to paraphrase it poorly, but you know, the civilization that destroys its soil destroys itself. This is what we're talking about, and that's absolutely true. And, and I appreciate you bringing that point. It looked like you wanted to say something, Nicolina.
3: To piggyback on what Luana was, was saying, and, and you, Michelle, 100. Um, we as a society have the luxury of not having to produce our own food to feed our own family. I mean, that is an absolute luxury. There are you know, countries where if mom and dad or son or daughter aren't planting and caring for the fields, no one's going to eat. And I think that as a society, because we've become so removed from production agriculture, we do take things for granted. You can get on your phone right now and Amazon Prime your groceries to have at your doorstep tomorrow morning. And you don't think about the 72-year-old or the 34-year-old that is waking up at the crack of dawn to care for that land, to produce that product, to eventually make its way through the the chain of system to end up on your doorstep. And I think um, as a society... We are further removed, you know, and, and I'm so grateful to see all of you here who have an invested interest in your food and making sure that our, our community agriculture is thriving and that our national agriculture is thriving. But we're missing a really valuable opportunity, and that is we have school-aged children going to school from 8 or 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. every day. And while they are learning all sorts of incredible and very important things, one Crucial um, subject matter is barely being scratched, and that is agriculture. And with the, I was talking with my good friend Teresa Bolton, wherever she is, we were talking about the STEM movement and how incredible STEM is and how agriculture fits into every aspect of STEM. It is science and technology. You better believe that there are students at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo studying agriculture engineering right now trying to figure out how we more productively grow the food to feed our nation and the world. And so I, I am, it is my soapbox, it is my life passion. I'm, I am so dedicated to finding ways to make sure that we start at a younger age. Our, our youth need to be thinking about the food that they eat and how it gets to their plate. Whether they're going to be in production agriculture or not, that awareness needs to be raised. And I think that's a, a vital aspect so our, our culture does not collapse.
1: And remember that, you know, what we're talking about is connecting people, you know, the 99% who aren't necessarily connected, but this also relates to future farming and the future of our food source, but it also relates to nutrition and health, right? The more connected people are to their food source, the better choices they're making. You know, sort of our diet now and what we eat and don't eat, you know, vegetables and fruit kind of at the bottom of the pile. We're not really living up to it. And I think that has a lot to do with sort of maybe an urban, rural, or just overall disconnect from where food comes from, how it's grown. I mean, you know, sort of lots of educational programs. The minute a child who otherwise wouldn't eat a certain vegetable gets the opportunity to grow it, plant it, harvest it, cook with it, suddenly the world changes. And what that means for the future of our country in terms of the sourcing of our food, but also and the educating of our populace, but also the health of our population, I think, really can't be overstated. Kat, I know you're also very passionate about you know, sort of the issue of why support local. Tell me. Well, I mean,
4: at the very basic level, if any of you are old enough in here to have watched Soylent Green, do we all want to end up eating little capsules? (laughs) Amazon has to get that food somewhere before it drops it on your doorstep. Uh, But the other thing I think we have to be aware of is that we've got to increase the, uh, maybe the status and the financial capability of farmers. Because... Uh, Not too long ago, if you told your parents that you wanted to be a chef, they were going to be horrified. That was not where they were aiming. They wanted you to be a professional. Um, Now it's sexy to be a chef. We need to make it sexy to be a farmer, and we need to make sure that whether it's changing our attitudes about how much we pay for the food we eat, we spend so much less in America on our food than any other culture um, throughout the world, we need to understand that it's worth paying a price for good food so that farmers can be financially sustainable so there's some incentive for these younger people to go into farming. Okay, there's a lot you said
1: there, but first I've got to take it to you, Pierre. Is farming sexy?
5: <laughs> oh, that's a good question. So it's funny you say that. that um, when I first, so I'm a first-generation farmer. Never, for, No one in my family, in our history that we know of, has ever farmed. When I came home after studying computer science, and told my family and friends, I'm going to become a farmer. Um, I think I literally had friends say, and I'm just going to, you know, water it down a little bit, um, you know, you're definitely not going to make any money. That's not how you get all the babes. Um, and so, now I'll come back and say, hey, buddy, you're wrong. <laughs> um, you know, I think it definitely is today. And that's one thing that I actually love to advocate to youth is that specifically in agriculture, it is probably the one frontier that has not evolved the same way other industries have in in the the relative speed and the the technological explosion that we've seen. Uh, Agriculture is untapped for chemistry, biology, robotics. I mean, you name it. Every profession you could think of is applicable. That's what's sexy about it. Uh, When I go out and I talk to kids, I tell them, what do you want to be? You name it. Well, whatever you're talking about is probably something that you can apply to agriculture in a way that's never been done before, in a very meaningful way, where you can add a lot of value, and and that's where I think it's really exciting. Um, you know, uh, t- touching on the point of, of civilizations and, and as humans evolved, we started off as 100% hunter gatherers, and then eventually farmers, and that's when civilizations took off. And it's not until recently that the majority of of us became not farmers. Um, You know, you think of the cornerstones or or the the professions within communities, teachers, firemen, you know, uh, police officers. Well, the farmer used to be one of those members, the cornerstone part of the village. Uh, You know, you knew that person. And out of all those professions, the only one to get pushed out was the farmer. You think of it all those others stay core and vital to society the one The one that kind of went away is the farmer Today, that farmer's starting to come back and and that is really exciting um, to because what what more is there, do we have an intimate relationship with them than food? And, you know, that's how we share, you know, time with each other. What do you do? You go to a restaurant uh, and for the food specifically. So to know where your food comes from, to have a, a human relationship with the person who grows it is very meaningful and, and just goes down to the roots of being a human, in my opinion.
1: Well, that was perfect. And that sounds like the perfect lead in for you, perhaps, Steve, to talk about food and farming and the connection. And-
6: well, yeah, I mean, food is everything. This guy right here grows half of my food. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the interaction alone is is priceless. You know, I could, I don't even, I don't order any of my produce. My, I think half of my farmers are here that I see on Wednesdays and Tuesdays, and you know that alone. Every time I see this gentleman right here, I literally learn probably something new. He's taught me how to forage mushrooms, and, and just those interactions, going back to that that, that personal relationship with your farmer. I learned something day, every day that I wouldn't, you know. We all, as, as chefs, we always get caught up with and, with the art and how cool it is and how it tastes and everything, but there's so much more, you know. And, <clears throat> and it is just, it is priceless. I mean, I go uh, half of the stuff that for my fine dining dinners, I, I, I harvest myself, and that, just the feeling of that alone just is, you can't even explain it. I don't know why. I can't, I can't tell you why it feels good. It just does. Because it's, it, food is life, you know, and it, it grows just like we grow. And, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know. It's, and the, the, the big thing is here, it's like not every restaurant can do what I do by having it 98% all come from two farms. I mean, that's just crazy. It is. I understand it. But s- start with just your carrots. Get just your carrots first. I guarantee you within six months to a year, half of your menu is going to be because you're going to realize it's baby steps. It's intimidating to, to say you're going to have to do that all at once. It's hard. We didn't start that way. We started a little at a time. And that's very important. Baby steps. We can't, you know, and, and so a lot of times this looks like a big clique, you know, and, and people that don't know about it feel, feel like they can't be a part of this clique, you know, and we, we know we can be snobby sometimes. What do you mean you don't know what kohlrabi is? You know what I mean? But, it, but it's true. We have to educate the people in, in, an, in a not intimidating way, you know, and that's what we try to do through my restaurant. and. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's how I feel about it. But,
1: And I I think this is a good lead in for you, Mike, because sort of we had the conversation about what about chefs who can't get all of their produce and most can't. How do you respond to the sort of like, do chefs have an obligation to buy local? And if so, how much? And how do you make that work economically? How does that work for you?
7: Um, I don't think they have an obligation to. They should. I mean, as a chef, like I got into it because I love that kind of thing and I love the relationships, and now actually it's very relaxing and makes me feel a little more sane to be able to spend time with Jack or Noel, uh, your brother, or um, spend time with the farmers You're working so much and so overwhelmed and busy all the time. That relationship with the farmer is amazing. Like it's like that, that hour a day or on my day off to go up to Valley Center or Escondido and spend time up there, it's, it makes you feel normal. That helps. Um, but in the, um, in the restaurant business, um, it is hard to do what, what Steve does and have 98% of all your stuff come from from local farms. But like he said, you just have to start with um, ordering your carrots. Or for me, it's easy. Um, working with the farmers in San Diego, with Jack and Noel and B-Wise and anyone else, um, it writes the menu for you. Like, why would you not use all the produce in town? You're supporting small business. You're supporting the 1% of the, you know, the farmers. And you're buying a superior product. You're buying a product that, if you did a test against, if you took a carrot from Steely or B Wise, and you took a carrot from Shamrock or wherever U.S. Foods, and you tested them for sweetness and sugar content, the one from the local farms would blow it out of the water. Like it would, it's flavorful. Um, There's the third plate, which Dan Barber wrote, has a huge part about that, Um, and it's just about like the quality of the food that you're getting it's not even much more. And I know we talked about this. If there's no excuse not to buy it because of you dictate the price of your menu. So as long as you can cost out a dish, you can charge for whatever you're buying from a local farm. So saying that you can't buy it because it doesn't co- it costs too much is just kind of to me a cop out to, to not do it. But um, I love doing it just because it's it makes my job easier. I have a very strong Italian background for food. You know, that's simple food. Like a a bowl of pasta is one bowl of pasta, but there's so much that goes into it, and the quality of the product is so important. So for me, um, buying those products from around here that are a superior product make my job a lot easier because you let them speak for themselves.
1: Before I end up with you, Keith, who I, who's our, our academic on the panel, who's taking notes, so I know there's something coming, because uh, <laughs> there's a couple things I want to put to you. But I want to ask if you wanted to add anything, Al, about sort of why you know local farming, regional farming, why why it matters. In
8: um, well, it takes a, a farmer to fill, feed a village. Um, the the um, I'm going to come at it from a different different angle. Um, I don't think you should have to pay high prices Um, we can produce produce cheaper in any place in in the world um, sometimes and other times it's high price and you need to let us know that Um, we need you to be successful so we can be successful Um, you need to tell us um, and you what do you want us to grow what do you want farmers to grow Um, it doesn't do any good um, for me to grow Fuerte avocados, if you want Hass avocados. Um, because I like Fuerte avocados, <laughs> I grow some for myself, but the ones I sell are the Hass avocados. Um, but, and then the other uh, angle I want to bring to this, why should people buy local, is there's a large movement and frequently ballot initiatives that drive us crazy. To preserve the farm. You want, people want to vote us into perpetuity. That removes all the value from our farm, and all of a sudden we're upside down on our loans. We, we're preserving the farm as long as we're prosperous. So if we're producing the right product to sell to you, and you're prosperous, and you buy more pro- product from me. Then we'll protect that, that farm without any ballot initiative. So I'm coming at it from a different angle, and that is the land. You know, protecting the land. Um, we're talking about food and farmers, but we can't be farmers without the land. So you, a lot of people automatically think we would be in support of, you know, just like ripping the value off that property and making it making it um, a farm forever. Well, maybe not. Maybe so. Maybe some people can afford to do that. Maybe some people can't. But the best way to do that is for the farmer to be prosperous, and, and for that, and we need people like you with the farmers' markets, and and we need the chefs to tell us to tell the farmer. Because Eric, backed me up on this. How many times do we get a new farmer comes to Farm Bureau? What should I grow? Well, you get 20 people, 20 farmers in the room, you're going to get 40 answers. <laughs> and um, so we don't know what that answer is. Um, there's over 200 crops in, in San Diego County. So you are fortunate, you chefs, because it's fairly easy. But the other thing that I hear from our side is we do not, farmers don't do a good job of delivering to local. Um, we're good at delivering truckloads to Riverside. And then from Riverside, it goes all over the world. But if I have to deliver a box to you, I don't know how to get that done.
7: Right. It's getting better. It's getting a lot easier and it a lot more convenient, better. for sure. And, and
4: that is why God made specialty produce. Yeah. <laughs>
7: I, that's a thing is actually we order a lot of produce from local farms or like steely delivers for a ton of different other farms right. up in valley center realistically we're never going to buy yellow onions or russet potatoes from a local farm just because of it's kind of a commodity product but yeah. but any any specific uh very forward um, vegetable in our dishes if you guys don't have it and like for example if we don't have delicata squash from you guys this week or from from steely farms or local farms Specialty produce always does have a farmer's market, something in the farmer's market cooler, from a local farmer.
1: Well, look, it's, it's 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 sort of local, regional, state. I mean, these are concentric circles, and I appreciate you you giving that point. You know. You know, as consumers who are, are conscious, we, we want to think like, what, what, what should we eat? Well, you're saying we'll, we'll, grow, we'll grow what you want to eat, you know, and it's sort of like having this dialogue is where, you know, the magic happens. And now I'm going to take it to the man furiously taking notes because there's a couple of points that we, we, we started. You started to hint on it a little bit, Al, which is like, how do we define, you know, we who are in the 99% and probably the urban market, you know, who are we and how are we defining what farmers need and, and what their culture is and what the heritage is, you know, possibly inaccurately, right? Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about sort of that fact. And also, I know that you have a, a nice story and some research on the carbon footprint aspect that comes into local produce. So.
9: Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, just listening to this response to your opening question, <laughs> why should we value and respect farms in our region. And Eric gives us this beautiful perspective of, first of all, because it's there for us. It's part of our place. And it's a phenomenal thing to be able to have in proximity to the urban. But the other side of this is we had better wake up now because you use the word collapse. But it is clear that on the face of the planet right now, we're becoming an urban hive. We're now 54% urban. It's likely to be 70% before too long, and you would think that those doing development and, and, and undervaluing the rural would think that we can do everything in the city. Mm-hmm. There's a metrocentric bias that is systematically undervaluing the rural. So I'm coming at this from the academic perspective, right? I, I direct the urban studies and planning program at UC San Diego, but one of the first things I did when I took this job was we started a bioregional center for sustainability, science, planning, and design. And we're insisting that to be healthy as a metropolitan region, we need to be paying attention to urban-rural linkages. And so we need to begin thinking like a bioregion. And so we're building to support and to elevate the value, make the value known, because I thought the point that you raised is very interesting, that if we're going to, say, preserve the land, what it does to markets and how it undervalues the land, we need to figure that out how to value the land. So we're creating a, a, bio region, a, a healthy bioregion science gateway that's going to begin to map our regional assets and begin to look at that stuff. And I'll just end with this. There's some hope, I think, for getting out from underneath the metrocentric bias and the wake-up call that needs to happen. And that is the following. Our nation's premier research institution, the National Science Foundation, is beginning to say that we gotta do research that's getting out of the silos. So wait for it, they're putting money, 71 million dollars out there for those of us that wanna study the convergence of research and they're funding what they call works that will look at the food, energy, water, security, trilemma. Now that's a mouthful, it's fancy language, but what they're saying is we gotta get busy looking at how we provide ourselves with food and water and energy. And the answer to that, I would say, is really at a bioregional scale. And that's where I'll I'll end with that. There's a lot more we could say about it in terms of... Well, let me end with this. Sorry, there's just one more thing. You warned them. For his
1: students who are watching on Facebook right now. (laughs) This is on the test tomorrow.
9: Yeah, This actually was on the test. (laughs) As, as an academic at one of the world's great research universities, we're not performing the way that we should. Not enough of our pie chart of attention at the great UC San Diego is focused on problem-solving, solutions-oriented research. We need to have a rooted university transition in which more of the research is activated. <laughs> the kind of work that you're doing, I think, is emblematic. You are the Poster child is not the right word, but (laughs) you are a champion of what it means to actually get the university and the science and technology activated in our own region, but also in the pedagogy and the institution of learning and the democratization of science and technology. Because the story that you told about letting kids know that, hey man, Yes, agriculture can be sexy, and guess what? We need all sorts of technology and science in the agriculture, and that's an up-and-coming uh, realm. So,
1: Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's one of the reasons why we are working with UCTV and why we chose that as the platform and partner for these dialogues is that, quite frankly, what you said and what you said, Nicolina, is that There's a lot of young, bright talent out there with different backgrounds and skill sets that we would love to, you know, think about these issues and apply them to the solutions that we're here talking about. And so... You are, I would say, a champion of that, someone from a different discipline who used your skill set to come up with a new way. And this is a multidisciplinary, multi-level kind of dialogue that needs to happen. Researchers need to hear from the farmers about what research is needed instead of sort of deciding on their own, right? This is a constant dialogue. And sort of then we talk about, you know, what's the best way to preserve farmland? Is it to preserve it as some sort of, you know, park in perpetuity? Or is it to keep it profitable? And obviously, they're not easy answers. And the dialogue is where the magic happens. So I didn't know you two were on a rural-urban rural, divide dialogue. I didn't know if there was anything you wanted to
0: ask, uh, add. Yeah, I, I do want to put a plug in for an organization. This, we talked about this urban-rural roundtable that we were part of years ago. And it eventually evolved into the San Diego Food System Alliance. Anybody who has not engaged with the San Diego Food System Alliance, please take a look at it. And it's this attempt to, to bring these everything we've talked about there is an organization in San Diego County that's attempting to bring the distributors, the consumers, the researchers, the farmers all into one place at one time and have this consistent um, conversation and doing some pretty exciting work. But it's very new. It's very fresh. And so if you want to be on the, the ground floor of something, that's pretty exciting. Uh, take a look at the San Diego Food System thank Alliance. Thank you for
1: mentioning the Food System Alliance. Actually, uh, I had that in your bio slide, but they do have a conference coming up uh, fairly soon that's, that will teach a lot of this information to specifically new and beginning farmers but also others who are interested in all this, sort of a three-day, sort of more in-depth and as well, they're also creating a database uh, with a lot of information for young farmers and or new or beginning farmers in our community, so thank you for pointing that out. That's an absolutely great group to get involved with, and they're very grassroots and uh, they are trying to build those kind of bridges. So thank you for saying that. Yep, all right, Keith.
9: So I just want to tip my hat to say how fortunate we are to have the San Diego County Farm Bureau. Um, part of the effort to get the university more activated, we need access. So Eric turned us on to um, Noel, Noel Stathley's farm. Staley, Staley. Staley Al's sorry. brother.
0: Al's oh, brother. Al-
9: yes. <laughs> Your brother's not um, even here and he's more famous
1: than <laughs> you. he, he, he. Yeah.
9: He welcomed a group of students that wanted to research the reality behind those beautiful oranges that you grow, that in fact their carbon footprint is less than the oranges that were being brought in from Florida. So the students, he opened up the farm, and we had a wonderful experience there. It's, it's It's a documentary that's on the web, and now we have empirical, I mean we all know it, it makes sense, right, that naturally the organic farms locally but we're able to get the empirical data to support that. And that was partly thanks to the, the network that you provide to the university to get students and faculty. So just, a, yeah.
1: So we're gonna move forward a little bit out of the sort of why we should all be focused. And we'll talk for a bit about some of the challenges that farmers face. And we're talking about farm economics. Uh, we'll be talking about land, access to capital, Uh, labor, water, regulatory oversight, uh, the aging, declining farmers, uh, beginning farmers. So uh, I wonder if either from our farm policy slash farmer folks or farmers generally, if any of you would like to talk a little bit about some of the issues. You briefly brought up land, but about access to land, uh, capital, or any of these sort of what I call um, struggles for farmer, realities maybe.
8: Yeah, (laughs) You want...
1: Yeah,
4: sure. You got
8: you got a couple of days? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my my wife quotes some a former boss of hers, there's no uh, challenges, only opportunities. <laughs> That's um, the next
1: category. We we flip them okay. and call them opportunities <laughs> <All later. right.
8: laughs> But uh, well you, so the so the challenges um, and um, they keep me awake at night. And you said, you know, earlier that farmers wake up at dawn. I, I don't know any that do. I, I'd like to meet a, a farmer that sleeps. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but um, our, our biggest problems um, right now um, is, uh, to paraphrase parap- parap- uh, Ronald Reagan, is uh, we're the government and we're here to help you. Um, <laughs> is uh, people that want to help us uh, from Sacramento and Washington, um, that have never ever been to a farm like you have or like you have. Um, and so some of our biggest challenges are bringing those legislators out to the farms, explaining that um, uh, you know, we value our, our labor force we are not trying to kill them. We don't need any more regulations. Um, we don't need to blow a whistle every 15 minutes to tell them how to drink the water. They're insulted by that, yet it's the law. So um, our, some of our biggest challenges are that farmers like me and Doug and my brother and Pierre, um, and you know we're trying to do the best job we can and um, my brother-in-law said that it said at dinner one night. He says, "I can't believe you are doing all these things to uh, better yourself and your workers and comply with every law perfectly. Yet you're still worried. You're dropping something through the cracks. And the reason we're worried is because the penalties are so great. Um, so." Uh, I guess one of the biggest comp- um, challenges for us is compliance. It, I spend more time in my office than I do in the field, and that's obscene. That is really ridiculous. But that's the way farming is these days. Um, a CDFA, California Department of Agriculture, official came into our winery one day. My wife happened to be there and started reading us the right act for some form we had not filled out which we didn't even know about and he she says how am i supposed to know about that and he said don't you have a compliance officer <laughs> like okay so we're a small business just getting by and yet we're supposed to hire a compliance officer my next hire is not going to be my number two person it's not going to be a foreman it's not going to be a computer analyst it's going to be a compliance person to replace 50% of what I do. So one of our biggest challenges is compliance. We need to look at the rules. And if I was dictator, every time we get a new law, two have got to go away. Two, <laughs>
1: let, two <laughs> have to go away. <laughs> get out of my way. I have to confess, I-, I am a lawyer by training, and I tend to have a pro-regulatory stance. However... I must say that the myriad of laws and regulations from the federal to the state to the local to the county that oversee every small aspect of farming, I must say, is quite overwhelming.
8: Well, don't get me wrong. I'm not against regulations. No, no um, I, I am against regulations that are put on us for no purpose.
1: Look, I, I, what, I, what I see is a lot of overlap highly confusing system. I was thinking to myself it was good that you had the franchise tax board. I mean, we, Luana and I were talking before the panel. If you want to go into farming, you know, maybe you need to study regulatory processes that's or compliance like that's the that's where you do spend a lot of your time. And look, of course we need rules and regulations. They serve a valid purpose. They were enacted for a valid purpose. However, they can often be overburdensome and in some respects, look, Laws and regulations were passed at a time when they were passed, and so they therefore often are backward-looking, right? And they don't necessarily reflect a current or the future realities of any any given profession. and And so, you know, some of the things that we have... Locally, regionally, whether it's composting or disposal or water or pesticides, and you've got EPA. I tried to find a single flow chart that that any farmer could potentially look at to decide which laws and regulations they might be subject to, and there is no such thing. You have to look at each one individually, and it's on and on and on. I mean, you could probably have, you know, a doctorate of law and still be confused about the regulatory oversight. So I appreciate what you're saying, and I think there's definitely room for improvement there. Uh, It shouldn't be the thing that keeps people from farming, from farming profitably, and quite frankly, it shouldn't be counterproductive, which I think in many instances it is. So that's my two cents. Luana, please.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to hold myself back on this. You know, when people get into farming, don't hold back. <laughs> when p- farmers get into farming because they love to farm, and and the worst thing about it is when they they get to this point where they don't even have time to farm because they're so busy trying to deal with all of these other issues. I mean, it really, really is a struggle. Uh, I know my own family. I came from production ag uh, family. Had no, uh, I, I didn't ever think I was going to work in agriculture. Went out and studied nutrition and food science. I was going to go the holistic route. And as my family's business was growing and they wanted to move on, they're, they're trying to make a dollar. They're, they're trying to farm and, and, and handle their costs and everything, and they're trying to figure out how to do this. And so they said, you know, we, we've got to, like, streamline things. We've got to start doing things ourselves. We've got to cut out the middleman. We've got to learn how to do all of this stuff. So I got sucked into farming, and I have no regrets. I absolutely love it. But, but let me tell you how challenging it is. I mean, just one of the projects that, that we had done was to build farmworker housing, which is something that is so essentially important to our workforce. That was like a whole nother business, you had to be in the restaurant business you had to be in the hoteling business you had to be you know personal care health all of that and all of that takes time and money and expertise and that's a really important part was a very important part of our farm. So I, I just share that to kind of just elaborate on what can happen, but, but real quickly, I'll, I'll talk about um, this. There was the California Ag Vision, which the concept uh, came out of CDFA, California Department of Food and Ag, um, which I, I worked on for about four years. And the idea was to figure out a strategic plan on how we could, we could save, and and grow California agriculture because we know that it's unique and we know that we grow over 400 uh, different varieties of specialty crops, fruits and vegetables, nut trees. I mean, it goes on. Trying to figure out how we were going to do that. And the challenges, we've already talked about all the different challenges here, so I don't want to keep on going on that. But there's so much work going on trying to figure out how we can save agriculture, whether it's water costs, whether it's labor, whether it's regulatory streamlining. Um, th- there are just so many. I'll, I'll stop there.
1: Yeah, we can't spend all night on
2: regulations, but
5: uh. <laughs> I want to touch on one thing. Please, please. <laughs> just to paint a picture a little bit uh, and, and to expand on the, a risk uh, issue that you mentioned there, Al, you know, in basic business, risk reward is, is a common-sense thing. Um, Higher risk should have a higher reward and vice versa. Well, so let me paint this. I sell lettuce. Imagine if someone, God forbid, were to die who consumed that lettuce. Well, let's think about now farmers have gone to jail. You know, they have that ultimate responsibility. But let's think of this. Along the, the food chain, the chain of custody, that lettuce has changed hands several times. How do you know that the person preparing the lettuce didn't have the raw chicken on the countertop and that salmonella got cross-contaminated and, you know, they found those items in the kitchen and all of a sudden that farmer is being investigated. The way that, that the, uh, the law tends to come down is the organization along that custody chain with the least documentation is the one who ends up holding the bag. So if you're a Costco... If you're a big distributor, if you're the farmer, most of these big players are all very well positioned and organized, and they've got their ducks in a row. They have
1: their compliance officers.
5: If you're a small farmer who doesn't have the ability to have that level of sophistication in compliance documentation... You might have done everything right, but if it's not written, it never happened. And if you can't prove certain things, that risk is tremendous. And the risk is you go to jail. It, you know, it's, it's not something trivial. So there's a critical mass size for a small farmer where you can't just try to do it yourself and, you know, get by. If something bad were to happen, you don't, you're not protected because you're not big enough. So there's this question, and we'll get to solutions, I'm sure, but um, there's this, this continuum of at what point can you be sizable enough as a small operation and still be considered small and still be in the community and all those things, but yet play like the big boys do in order to live in this world of high regulation and etc.?
1: I mean, I think this is this is common in a lot of industries, but it's particularly true here in farming that most regulations are sort of built in a one-size-fits-all model, and that one size is not the small farmer without the compliance officer, it's the larger one. So that does make it hard for small businesses, and farming in particular, I think, has sort of a heavy burden. I, I, I want to shift gears for a minute, because I think we could, in fact, talk about regulations forever, uh, but, but but I think, look, that's one issue. That, that, that's clearly one. Compliance is an issue, but we also have the issues of... Of land and access to land. Land is expensive, and in California, it's particularly expensive. Right? We may be the number one agricultural state, but we also have one of the highest sort of costs of land and how that affects farming generally. And also, we happen to have some of the most expensive water within the state of California. How does that affect farming? And I wonder if you have some thoughts on that.
0: We look at the pluses and minuses in farming in San Diego County. We've got the best weather. We can farm 12 months a year. And we've got 20-plus million customers right in our backyard. I mean, right here. We don't have to go far to find customers. But you're right. You identified the challenges. The entry level on land is really, really challenging. The cost of water is a challenge. There's all these things that are challenges. But we see farmers who are successful every day. And the ones I see are the ones who figure out some place on a cutting edge. They're a little bit different than what everybody else is doing And those are the people who are getting into the farming business and they're succeeding. Now, their advantage might be in some aspect of the marketplace. They may have figured out how to get their product directly to the restaurants or directly to to the green grocers, I don't know. It may be technology-based. It may be in the variety they grow. It may be in the crop they grow. It may be in their irrigation technique. But you have to have something that sets you apart from everybody else because you have to overcome the land and you have to overcome the water costs. You, you have to or else you are destined to fail. And it, and it hurts my heart at times. I, I hear people, they come to me and they say they want to become a farmer. And it sounds to me they want to reinvent the farm of the 1950s. They wanted, they've got this romantic sense of going out and scratching the earth and growing some vegetables and selling them, but that's not enough anymore. It's just not enough. You've got to, got to overcome those challenges. And the way you do it, on the water side, you just have to be very efficient with the water you use. And on the land side, Again, back to the farmers I see who are entry level, so many of them are saying, Where can I buy some land? It's like, No, where can you lease some land? You know, try to learn how to do that. The other thing on the entry level side is we've got this large number of people now who want to get into agriculture. I shouldn't say large, but we have a number of people who want to get into agriculture. It's really, really exciting, but they don't come from a traditional agricultural background. And they don't want to instantly go into farming. We'll set Pierre aside for a minute. because He's an outlier in, in, this, uh, in, in, in this story. But, I mean, if I wanted to open up a restaurant, I'm not going to just say, I want to open up a restaurant because I like to eat and I like food. I'm going to go out and I'm going to work for somebody. People and I'm going to do go, that every day, though. Yeah, and people do it. And, and, and they crash. And they crash. And farming's the same way. So my piece of advice is somebody wants to become a farmer, go work for a farmer. And and, and and learn it. And it might not be in San Diego County, you may have to go to Imperial Valley, you may have to go to the Salinas Valley, but you can always come back once you've got those skills and you know what you're doing. And. You know, learn on somebody else's dime.
1: I, I want to lead to you, Nicolina, because I think you come from a traditional farm family, but what you've done is thought about, I mean, sort of new ways to market your product. And I think sort of you, st- you talked about that for a minute. It may not be new technology, you know, maybe farming the same way, but now you have to find new markets. Like, how there are lots of ways to stay.
3: Absolutely. And I, I wouldn't consider my family a traditional farm family. I mean, if I'm, I'm going to be completely <laughs> transparent. My, my family, I would consider them gentlemen farmers, right? right um, farming never um, until my my personal family um, never put the roof over our heads um, but I, I grew up um, in Fallbrook and surrounded by agriculture and through my involvement for H and FFA ended up getting a degree in agriculture business and my husband and I said hey let's try to make agriculture be our bread and butter let's let's make this happen and we started by working with my grandparents who thankfully have um, a lot of acreage in the Duluth Valley and we harvested and brought our products to farmers markets. Um, that was an easy uh, way for us to enter agribusiness um, by um, having not many barriers other than the regulatory barriers, but you got to check the boxes and. Meet <laughs> got the, to have that original stamp on yes, that for when the inspector shows Meet the, meet shows the nice, up. Um, the nice market managers, and and weekend and week out. You know, um, in addition to caring for the land during the week, bringing your your items to, to market and creating relationships with the consumer to um, to hopefully have them. Build a strong enough relationship where they see you every single week and they depend on you to feed their families, um, but sometimes that's not even enough. And so my husband and I, wanting to um, continue our our agribusiness efforts and to and and really because we are so invested in in agriculture and what it provides. Um, Kind of diversified our business really, and we we found a niche that um, there are some big people doing it, and we're like that little dog that's like oh, we're gonna get that. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna make a mark in San Diego County. Um, but we started a business called Farm to Office, and so we are taking our family's produce and produce grown from other local area farmers, and bringing healthy snack options to office office locations because. Any large company, small company that cares about their employees that has a break room, they want healthy options. Half of our customers that we see at the farmers market, I ask them, "So, what do you do with you know the produce that you buy here?" Oh, I take it to work with me and I enjoy it. I'm like, duh, Nicholas, that's a great idea. <laughs> so we 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 found this niche and it's it's a slow grow, but you know, one day I hope. Everybody in here is like, oh, yeah, I've got a farm to office basket at my workplace, and I love it. Um, but I think as, as agriculturalists, as farmers, um, we have to always be thinking of finding, as Eric said, that, that niche that's going to separate us and, and allow us to continue to be um, fruitful in our endeavors and cat. fruitful, Pat, I, so yeah. fruitful. Right. <laughs> I was just going
1: to i know you have a little to say on this subject about marketing you know for farmers and this is your expertise you're on the other side of the equation but tell us what you know about new ways that farms can market their products you or know, best ways yeah it's
4: like eric says it's like any business you have to find your differentiation point mm-hmm. um, it, no more than you can bring chocolate chip cookies to the market when everybody in the world makes chocolate chip cookies you can't just keep farming the same way packaging the same way Things change, and I'm seeing a lot with the younger generation of farmers, with people like Nicolina and Jeff and and some of our other folks that are at the markets, that they're thinking that way. They come back to farms after they've gone away to school, and they come into this culture where at least one of their parents has always worked outside the farm on a day job in order to support the farm, and they're saying... Yeah, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I'm not going to go get a job to support the thing that should be supporting me. So they've taken a different attitude towards it. They've made marketing important. They recognize that at least part of their produce, if it goes direct to the consumer, is putting a lot more money in their pocket. Um, When you go to a distributor, when you go to a packing house, all of those folks have to make money too. They've got to run those trucks. They've got to pay their people. So obviously the percentage of the retail price that the farmer gets is going to be reduced. We suggest to newer farmers, especially, that they look at both routes because there's some assurance in selling to a wholesaler, a distributor. You know that that stuff's going to be sold. You don't have to worry about whether it's going to be wasted once it leaves you. But the part that is direct to consumer makes you so much more money. Mm -hmm. And then to do that, you've got to be smart about all the things that any other business has to be smart about. You've got to understand social media nowadays. You've got to know how to market. You have to make your displays attractive. So that's all part of it, too. And somebody as Pierre says, that can invent new systems for some of these things to help farmers would be in a great place. You know, somebody that's interested in social media, start a service where you do social media for a variety of farmers, get to know their business, get to tell their message somebody that could manage to convince the CDFA to streamline and get onto computers, <laughs> to introduce CDFA to the web. That would be exciting. So there's a lot of opportunity.
1: I went to uh, EcoFarm a few years back. I think I was telling Eric about this and went to a session called Tweeting on a Tractor. And I was like, I have to go to this because this is fascinating. But the whole point was telling sort of the farmers guess what you know sort of you you have this is the modern world we live in you have to get in with social media and or find someone but you know if you're small you may not have a someone other than you so they said well we know you're busy do it while you're on your tractor or something like this you know the point is you have to sort of find new ways now Pierre I want to take this to you for a second of course you came up with a new model but I bet that you're also sort of highly focused on marketing is that how did you look at that differently
5: yeah absolutely um you know I I'll generalize it a little bit more. You know, I, I found, as you guys said, a niche or a special way to do something and solve a challenge. Um, you know, I would say, in general, the solution is innovation, bar none. And and even maybe more specifically is science. You know, every decade and every year, there has been a scary statistic that says, if we keep doing things the way that we're doing them, we're going to run out of X or not have enough food. Well, we've been saying these things for decades, centuries probably even. You know, Forward-looking, we're not going to make it unless we adapt. But guess what? We've adapted every year and every decade. And how have we done that? It's been through innovation and specifically science that allows us to take these challenges and break through them. So today, we're sitting here with today's challenges. We're going to solve them through innovation and we'll adapt and tomorrow we'll have different challenges. So I don't want to you know, make it specific to what I solved or what I did, it's, it's, it's a general, there are always going to be challenges, which are opportunities, and it's how can you think outside of the box to, to solve those in a different way that someone isn't currently doing. Um, you know, and, and once it's solved, you, know, you can't be complacent about it. It will continue to change, so you can't find a solution and then stay there. Um, you know, as you talked about, that the Amazons of the world are going to get into the direct selling, and they're trying to get into the local. Eventually, they probably will somehow get into that, too. And then that space will start to change and evolve as well, and we'll have to continue to evolve. So it's a continual innovation and push for outside of the boundaries.
2: And
4: part of it's keeping the consumers informed, that the effect you have on farmers and on your local economy isn't the same when you buy food from Amazon. Mm -hmm. A huge percentage of the money that you spend at a farmer's market stays in this community. It it goes to the farmers, it goes to the people the farmers hire, it goes to the the jam seller across the aisle that the farmer buys from. So it makes a huge difference to do conscious consumption and to buy not only local, but buy direct as often as possible.
1: Uh, Keith, I have, uh, I imagine since we were having this conversation about innovation and technology and science and a couple of those words are in your organization at the university. I imagine you might have some thoughts on that. So
9: I am a big fan of science. I (laughs) I think it's uh, very true what you're saying, that a lot of the resolution will come out of science and technology, but on some level it's an order of magnitude issue in which certain buffers are being exceeded in Mm -hmm. in a way that might be problematic. For instance. I just read a horrifying statistic that we all know about uh, the rising level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right? It's at 400 parts, over 400 parts per million. If it gets over 800 to 1,000, which is expected to happen, that we're going to experience a cognitive deficit of 21%. That that level of carbon in the atmosphere is going to make us stupid. So there's a little bit of a race against time.
1: (laughs) Wait, has it started? (laughs) I think
4: I know some... Wait, what were you talking about? (laughs) But
9: I I would like to sort of um, suggest another way of thinking about what we can do with the science now. I, I think the farming community is providing tremendous value that is currently not recognized or quantified in ways that should be remunerated. So, for instance, the back country and the farm... There's all sorts of things going on with carbon sequestration as a result of the biota, for instance. There's actually water preservation in some respects through regenerative agriculture. And when you begin to turn food waste into soil and you're intentional about getting half inch of compost out in the working landscapes where there's cattle range, that's actually gonna preserve our aquifers. So I'm not a big fan of regulations either but as the academic trying to think about how to make the invisible visible and capture value, the value that's being generated in the extant operations, let alone innovations that could happen, what's actually already going on, that if we could figure out how to extend a kind of green infrastructure district thing that actually provides money through land value capture or something in the urban areas to provide relief for water budgets or something, justified with the quantifiable evidence that these ecosystemic services are actually enabling us to do what we do.
1: Well, I was thinking about what you said. I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, we can't just look back and let's farm like we were in the 1800s and romanticize that. Uh, and also, you were talking about sort of how we bring technology in. But I think it is a balance. As you said, look, some traditional farm practices are very good, and you've mentioned a few of them. You know, when we talk about, you know, how many, what kind of inputs and how much input are we using, both from an economic perspective, but also from a soil growing perspective. You know, are we, are we maximizing the organic content in the soil? And a lot of that would have to do with regulations as dealing with compost and so forth. But are we, you know, we, we can farm and. In a way that, you know, instead of being a carbon emitter, can be a carbon sequesterer. And I think, like, so this is a little bit uh, some old and some new. It's sort of finding, the uh, you know, sort of a Perfect storm where these things come together, and we can farm in a way that will address some of the environmental concerns, uh, water concerns, and so forth. Um, and you know, so I think it's neither you know too romantic a vision of the past, and nor a 100% technological advance, but probably some combination of both. So. Uh, I appreciate what you said, and thanks for sort of bringing that up. Now, we've forgotten about our chefs for a bit here, and I, I wonder if uh, we do have a question from our audience. This is a little bit off-subject, but we're going to bring it down here. And uh, so let's talk for you for a second. Uh, one of the people would like to hear, you know, sort of how would you like to see sort of farm-to-table dining in San Diego evolve, emerge, anything in that sort of the sphere? How do you feel about it? And also from the farmers as well, sort of.
6: Uh, well Farm-to-table, I mean... First of all, I, I don't even like to use that term because it's just been too, it's turned into this, another marketing thing, you know, I just think right everybody, on. I think everybody should just get your produce, I mean, get your produce from your farmers as much as you possibly can. I mean, I don't, it's not, you know, people, again, back to technology, like, um, with, you know, my cell phone, I'm on that thing with on Instagram all day long. You know, it's part of my, part of what I have to do. You know, we have to adapt to chefs. I'm on it constantly. I have a couple followers and I'm at the farm all day long, you know, Instagram living and all that stuff, you know, and I get people running into me all the time are you really down there at the farm picking produce? Like, wow, that's just crazy. And I'm like, what the, what do you mean it's crazy? Like, that's so crazy. I mean, I'm in LA doing an event. Like, that's so crazy. You're really down there picking your own tomato. I'm like, that's how tomatoes, what do you mean? This is like the oldest thing in the world. It's not, they're acting like I'm just coming up with some crazy modern technique. You know, I'm picking vegetables and that's cooler and more modern than cooking with liquid nitrogen, you know? And they're like, they're like whoa, it's out of this world. I'm like, what? And I mean I know that doesn't answer the question exactly but yeah. I'm you know it's 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 just I, mean, I don't know it's it's just normal it's we're it's we're not doing anything special and it's I think it's just get closer to your farm.
1: I can, Perfect answer. I,
8: I want to say something about front <laughs> the table. Okay. So the farm-to-table phrase drives us crazy at the Farm Bureau. Okay. And Eric, no, I mean, we, at our board meetings, it's come up. We, our, our board wants to, to have a special committee to um, call out the, the chefs and restaurants that are abusing it. And um, that, that's not our job. It's not our job. Um, so we don't know what to do with that because as farmers, no matter where we go we know you're lying it's really easy because we know that if you put abc farm broccoli on your menu we know that guy went out of business last year so it can't be broccoli from abc farm or it's not even in season so um, yeah, that peach salad yeah. in February um, so, so we <laughs> applaud people like you guys that are truly doing it and I don't know and Trish is here she's, she does it um, I, I don't know how you know from our side of the community we can promote that With um, it's not in our mission statement we're grappling with it help us <laughs> You know, because uh, you know, it drives our growers crazy. You know, Eric, you... you. I mean.
0: I'd like to add what Al's saying, because here's the situation. I think the statistic I saw last year, last year was the first time in the United States we hit that tipping point where we eat more of our food out than we eat at home. So we're now eating out a lot. Great for the restaurant business. Look at San Diego County, 3 million people. If every restaurant in San Diego County decided to buy at least a portion of their food local... We don't have enough farmers. We don't have enough. We farmers. do not have enough farmers. If that was the case, it would just be—it'd be, it'd be a, a, a a tectonic shift. It would just be substantial. That falls on. But what us a great incentive to, for more farmers. To... But yeah, but that falls on us as consumers. When we go into restaurants, why aren't we asking the chef? Why aren't we asking the owner of the restaurant? What are you doing to support local agriculture?
4: Absolutely. And doesn't it drive you crazy when it, it says on the menu, farmers market salad? And you say, really, which farmers market did yeah. you get that from? They say, yeah. <laughs> there was,
1: a, there was a, quite an article, uh, I think a year ago, in San Diego Magazine by Troy Johnson, which farmed essentially a farmed a fable, right? Which was sort of raising this issue. And I think, you know, it did become a catchphrase. Um, you know, some of us think it has, you know, has meaning and, and shouldn't be that and certainly shouldn't be abused. But um, you know, clearly, you know, we have to find the sort of like the middle ground where maybe we maybe there are should be a
8: regulation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's why we need more regs. I know you're a far, you're a chef who uses a lot of local produce, but I don't think you put it on your menu. I,
7: I think it should be expected. I mean, that's it's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's two different aspects, like what you said. Um, I mean, I, me, I we use chickens from a local farm and eggs from a local farm and as much produce as we can as a local farm. I think that that should be expected, but kind of what I said earlier, it, it makes your job easier. Um, but on your point of view, like where if, if every farmer, if every restaurant ordered from all from farmers that it would collapse, I think that's where the balance is, you know. Um, we can't order onions and potatoes or simple, more generic vegetables from farms, but that's a balance. Like order as much stuff as you can and then whatever you can, not then you get from your produce companies. Or thank God our produce companies sell a ton of, they support so many local farms themselves. So, you know, it's a balance of, of what you get from them and, and what you get from that's not from a local farm or from, you know, from somewhere else. But I think we don't put it on our menus, but um, I, if you're going out somewhere to pay good money for food, I think you should expect to get good, good products.
2: You know, yes. that, that, brings up, that brings up the whole question about what is local. And, you know, local is where you can find it local. And if you can't, sometimes local is a little bit further out. And so sometimes those boundaries change. And there's a lot of conversation just on what is local.
9: Michelle, can I ask a question? Oh, please. So, Eric, I remember the broccoli issue, right? The Urban Rural Roundtable, part of the reason I think restaurants have a hard time ordering local is because, like, the school district. I remember it was the school district. They do 160,000 meals a day, and they don't just need, like, you know, a ton of broccoli. They may need five tons. And so it turns out that because we don't have that capability, there was some discussion about creating a regional food hub, that there would be aggregation and distribution. But I think that why didn't that ever happen, or what happened there?
0: Well, we still have food hub. If you go back, there, you look at every big metropolitan area, there was a market and all the farmers would be in their produce to market and all the restaurants and everybody come and buy their stuff there. Well, we got away from those. Basically, we, we built roads, we put wheels on trucks, and we got really good refrigeration. So we still have food hubs. They're just driving around. It's impossible to drive on a freeway and not see a produce truck anymore. And so it, it's really gotten easy to, to do it that way. So when you're buying those products from out of the area to fill out your menu, it's going to have to come by truck. A lot of buyers just don't have time to go to a produce market. I'm not sure we could go back and redo that. Um, I think if it was successful, someone would have done it by now, if if it made a lot of sense. But it is. That is a problem. There's no escaping that. We do have to figure out how do we connect the farmers to the restaurateurs and to the green grocers in the local markets to make that easy connection. I think we're just not taking enough advantage of social media and the web to maybe create virtual-type markets where people can go and trade and find the things find the things that they need.
1: I want to raise sort of one more policy question because we're toward the end of our time. Th- this is a policy question, Luana and I were talking about it a little bit before, as we talked about sort of some of the issues with new entrants or beginning entrance into the farming market. And there are some proposals, both at the federal level and at a, a couple of state levels, uh, to, con- to, to sort of talk about, is farming a public service? You know, we offer loan forgiveness for, as a lawyer, if I went and work in Appalachia, then I might get a little reduction off my student loan. We offer it in other careers for doing public service. So the broad question is, is farming a public service? We all have to eat. Is it then some farming uh, or all farming or some farming? And then sort of like, how do we feel about some of these ideas of, of using loan forgiveness or some other method to encourage young, new entrants into the, into the field. I'm, I'm sort of curious what everyone feels about that. I know you're ready, Al.
0: <laughs> and you're not okay. going to get the answer you want. I know. <laughs> I know. I
1: know. No, that's, um, well, <laughs> we had
8: a little conversation yeah. about this, so I, I, uh, that's the first time I heard of it. And um, it's interesting. So I've thought a lot about it since I talked to you last week. Um, I'm still against it, because I I don't consider farming or agriculture a public service. It's a business. It's an avocation, and it's a business. It's not a public service. Um, I'm in it to make money. And when I make money, I I make money by providing a product that you want. So it's not unlike selling computer chips. If I'm selling the wrong computer chips, I'm not going to stay in business. Um, So um, I don't want to diss your argument without coming up with a with a with a, another idea, and, and so what I would like to propose is some, uh, maybe a discussion around. Um, yes, I agree. It's hard for a young f- uh, farmer or or somebody that wants to get in agriculture to get enough access to capital. Capital's out there, um, and um, the, the the interest rates are fairly are. Geez, they're a lot better than when I started. Uh, Right now, they're a lot better. Um, But uh, maybe we need to be educating farmers in my generation on how to to transition our farm to our um, employees and um, children. Um, Succession planning, we do talk about that, but um, I personally would not have a problem Selling my business to some of my, to maybe even a coalition or two or three of my employees that came to me and say, "Hey, we want to buy you out," and I would let, I would not need a down payment because I know them. So um, there's a an, an interesting, possibly a way, and it piggybacks what Eric said when you, if you want to be a farmer, go work for a farmer. So I um, I would say, you know, maybe, you know, what you, I don't. Say, you know, maybe the loan forgiveness is something that people want to do. But I think maybe for me, I would rather see people come to me and say, I want to buy your business, but first I'm going to work for you for five years to prove that I'm good enough to buy your business um, at at interest only for five years and then, you know, payments after that. At a really, because man, um, if I could sleep and I needed an alarm clock, um, I would sell my business in a heartbeat.
1: Well, I think we, <laughs> look, I think what you're, what you're suggesting is, is beautiful and brilliant, sort of an alternative financing opportunity that you would provide, you know, sort of how wide scale and whether everyone else could afford to do that. You know, it's unclear. And I want to say that the proposal idea, it's not mine. Yeah. Uh, but, no, but I know. I, I, I'm sorry. I, no, yeah. but I read about it, you know, sort of a, it had an odd sort of broad-based uh, group supporting it from the Young Farmers Coalition to Civil Eats to Food Tank, sort of, a, you know, people from different sides of the equation, and I was just curious sort of, you know, how we all collectively think about whether it is a public service and whether, again, you know, I I think what you've suggested is right. I would say to you about you know you say you're in you're in a business it is a for-profit business but as a lawyer right if I choose to work in one job where I'm you know going to make a little more money then I'm not eligible if I choose this one that's deemed a public service because I'm offering something to the community then I am eligible so the question is if not all farming then is there some kind of farming carbon capture I don't know or one in which like you know you have some how you're training the next generation it's just an interesting question and I'm not sure you know what the right answer is but But yeah there's some
4: trickiness too about that because if you start subsidizing certain farmers or doing 40 acres and a mule or you know whatever you do then those people are competing with farmers that are operating this as a business Uh, we've got an organization in town that helps immigrants start farming and it's a wonderful thing but we have to be careful about not bringing them into farmers markets to compete with farmers who are paying for their land and paying for their water it puts them at a disadvantage the other thing about nonprofit things is that changes with the wind and the political climate. So if you're depending on nonprofit subsidies to farm and the administration changes to one that doesn't support a farm bill, you're in a bad spot.
0: Let let me, I want to add something, because we've touched on it a little bit. You just mentioned carbon and Keith brought it up and Dr. Pujo is out here has done some pretty exciting work here in San Diego County on this issue. And maybe if we just, let's not worry about the federal issues, but let's just look local. So here we are as local communities, um, working really hard to reduce our carbon footprints. But we've got all these farms. And, and I started out this night talking about we've got, this, we, we've got this really fortunate thing we have here. We've got farmers and we've got an urban population. We're not taking full advantage of that. And one of those ways we could do that, we, you look at all these carbon action plans that are being written by the cities and the counties say, let's go plant more trees to sequester carbon. Well, guess what? Farmers have taken a million trees in San Diego County out of production in the last 12 years wouldn't it have made sense for the urban communities to help keep those trees in the ground instead now we're trying to figure out how we're going to plant trees to sequester the carbon the communities have a real problem getting rid of their urban green waste and their organic waste but the farmers could use the compost the farmers just can't afford the transportation from the point of creating the compost and putting it to the farm well maybe that's the part the urban community could play to help the farmers stay in business. So I don't think we need to subsidize, but we need to figure out those partnerships and take advantage of each other.
1: Uh, You've raised an excellent point, which is that the communication between sort of the urban and rural communities sort of needs to be a two-way street. And if we're actually trying to solve those problems, whether it's tree planting for sequestration or how to use organic matter, you know, if we do it collectively and together, we'll come up with a solution where everybody wins and we'll still get to the same point. So I appreciate your comment in that regard. Look, we're about to write. Yeah, please, go ahead. I just
2: just want to say this is such an interesting subject because it really opens up the whole idea about reimagining. Imagining what agriculture opportunities can be for, for young, upcoming farmers, and um, you know, one of the examples I wanted to talk about is the growing trend of agrihoods that are developed. Right now, I think there's over 200 of them throughout the country, and there, I'll give you just one example. There's one called the Cannery uh, outside of Davis, and they have an interesting partnership. Um, with the Center for Land-Based Learning, and they take young people who are interested in agriculture and they teach them and they go through programs, and then they take a couple of those, those up-and-coming farmers and they give them opportunities. They're subsidized to then work the farm on this agri the cannery in Davis, and they can start to build their business and they support them until they can eventually get out on their own. It's a wonderful program to bring new farmers in, and I think that that, agrihoods offer a wonderful connection for all of us to interface, partner, um, be creative about what agriculture can look like in the future, instead of putting it in a box and limiting agriculture. Because if you do that, you're going to kill the very thing that you want to save. Before,
1: I want to go to you in a second, but tell us a little bit about the the project that you're working on. We didn't quite get there in North County, which is what we're talking about now is, okay, if it isn't loan forgiveness or some other access, how is it, how can we, you know, sort of revitalize uh, conversations, you know, the farming community and or add to it or, you know, reverse the trend uh, against the declining farmer? So tell me about your project.
2: So I'm, I'm currently uh, working with a company called um, integral communities. And the concept is to bring one of these agrihoods into North County in an area that really would create a bridge between um, the, the urban community and the farming community. And it would have a, a farm, a professionally run farm, um, it would have community gardens. Um, it would It would actually be fifty percent would be open space, and the rest would be built around community because there has to be an economic center to all of this and it 's an opportunity to help highlight um, the, the the greater agriculture out there a way to connect people maybe bring in some of these young farmers who really want to get their not get their feet wet and not only that but to get people excited about agriculture at whatever level whether it's the tech or science or whatever it is you know people are so disconnected so we need to think about how do we reconnect the disconnect and agrihoods have the ability to do that in many many different ways and so we can take these and we can foster agriculture and we get people excited and passionate and start thinking about agriculture in ways that they never did or even just start thinking about agriculture
1: Thank you. Um, uh, I wanted, Keith, I know you wanted to say something sort of about what we're talking about, and I, I do want to ask everyone sort of any final thoughts and then what we'll do is we'll wrap it up for our TV audience, not you on Facebook, for our UCTV audience and then we will take some questions from the floor if you're interested.
9: So just quickly because I know we're short on time. This public service thing is such a noble sentiment, but for the reasons that have been expressed here, I could see why that's probably a no-go. Um, and something maybe, I think we need to begin changing the narrative. And I think maybe instead of something like public service, the farming community provides what we could call a bioregional service, which smacks of a certain kind of entrepreneurialism that's beginning to get serious about urban-rural linkages. And I think the examples that you gave are fantastic. And so we just got to make these connections visible and, and, and forget about, I, you don't want to disadvantage somebody by giving subsidies over here. This is gonna to have to be a disciplined approach to understanding where that value lies and developing programs to make it happen. Um, one example, I think our campus, the UC San Diego campus is like a mini city. It's like the 19th city in the region, 56,000 people. It's gotta be carbon neutral, water wise, you know, zero waste, all these mandates. We're not gonna be able to do it on that footprint. And so the people running that operation are beginning to think, well, where can we fund offsite to get carbon credits. And I'm saying, well, let's begin to think about funding sort of treescape or green infrastructure that might
1: even include
9: supporting farmers and what they've been providing that hasn't been noticed or made visible yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: Brilliant. yeah. thank you. Any, any other final thoughts before? No? So I want to thank everyone in the audience and uh, at UCTV for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your attention and your energy. And... Um, Stay tuned next year. We'll be back for more.
6: You've been
9: listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.